In the hours after we recorded this episode on Friday, the board of Aussie Media issued a statement saying that the organization would be shutting down. Hello! Welcome to the contrarian episode of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello, hello. I'm here with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hello, hello. And we have a very special guest. We have Max Chafkin, also of Bloomberg. Welcome, Max. Hey. Um, Max is an editor at Bloomberg who edited a great story about corporate insider trading. So obviously, we're going to talk about that. We are also all full-time employees of media organizations and so obviously we're going to talk about the implosion of Aussie maybe we're not maybe maybe Emily works for a fintech and so she's not a media person anymore correct (laughs) but she's still a media person in her in her heart I can see behind her eyes she's like yeah I'm a media person (laughs) so we're going to talk about Aussie media which imploded this week but mostly and most importantly we're going to talk about Max's book Max you have written the book. What is it? Uh, it's called The Contrarian, and uh, it's a biography of Peter Thiel, the tech investor um, and Republican kind of political figure, and it also sort of doubles as a study in Silicon Valley power. Available at all good local bookstores right now. Go out and buy it. All of that coming up on Slate Money. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So, Max, you have written a biography of Peter Thiel. He is this multi-gazillionaire who really represents a certain strain of sort of crazy libertarian thinking in Silicon Valley. Is that the reason why you wrote the book, that you think he's like emblematic of something, of a, of a bigger thing, or is he kind of unique? Well, I, I agree that he's emblematic of the kind of crazy libertarian thing, but but the reason I wrote the book is because I think he's emblematic of, of something else, which is this, you know, this kind of veneration of a certain kind of tech company and a certain kind of quote-unquote disruption. So this idea that tech companies should get as big as possible, as quickly as possible, pushing towards, you know, basically monopoly dominance of their markets, while, you know, if at all possible, breaking as many rules as possible. So, and I think that, you know, is kind of like, you can think about that as the sort of cult of disruption, or kind of the Facebook business model or something like that. You know, Teal was, of course, um, an early advisor to to Mark Zuckerberg, the first outside investor, longest serving board member, he's had a huge impact on kind of the development of that company. And I would argue his kind of thinking, and I, and I mean this outside of the political context, although, you know, we can talk about that too, because I think it's interesting. His kind of basic playbook is is sort of at play at every tech company. And it helps explain a lot of both why these tech companies are so powerful and also kind of where they're going wrong. Yeah, it was really interesting to me to think about reading your book, the connection between Teal's politics, which are, I don't know if they're actually libertarian, but they're certainly anti-democratic and he tends to like dictators, monopolies, etc. And the way he ran PayPal and then how that anti-democratic politics trickles down into the tech world, into Silicon Valley Yet Silicon Valley somehow comes off looking really good for a really long time. Like the politics is embedding this philosophy of like move fast, disrupt, break things. And you should tell listeners maybe about how PayPal kind of embodied that. And yet they're still looked at as like great actors in our democracy. Like 
innovators and bringing us the new way and the future. But really underneath it all is this very creepy bent towards dictatorship and and really anti-democratic sentiment. So yeah, maybe tell us about the PayPal thing. Absolutely agree. I mean, I think I think people describe him as a libertarian. And of course, he does have some libertarian inclinations, like the inclination to not pay taxes or, or the inclination that, you know, tech billionaires should be allowed to get away with whatever they want to get away with. Um, but uh, but I think, as you say, his his politics are probably more complicated, more authoritarian than than what we normally think of as as a libertarian perspective. And so with PayPal, you know, everyone in tech kind of knows or, or many people in tech know about the PayPal mafia. That's this crew of sort of executive, basically friends of Peter Thiel, who've gone around, you know, investing in, in each other's companies and, and sort of moving money around. And, and they've created this really powerful influence network. Um, but the thing is, there's also this ideological network and their ideological underpinnings of the PayPal mafia. We, we think of PayPal as this kind of Oh, it's a nice way to basically buy things on eBay or, or or send your friends money for to split the check or something. But of course, Teal saw it in the early in in you know 1999, 2000 as this you know libertarian project as a way to take basically power sovereignty away from countries. He talked about giving everyone a Swiss bank account in their pocket, and the idea being that you know once you have this kind of digital wallet, it's going to be very hard for any country. Back then, he's talking mostly about kind of repressive countries, not necessarily the United States, but it's going to be very hard for countries to kind of control that. And I think like that is so. I think that that kind of ethos is embedded in in the way all of these companies think, no matter what their politics are. They may donate to Democrats or something, but I still think they kind of agree with this basic idea. And of course, it's totally embedded in crypto. I mean, it's like exactly how, or not all of them, but a lot of crypto um, people sort of see the world and see the advantages of, of, of that technology. So tell me a little bit about the PayPal mafia. This is something that I've always been curious about. You see Peter Thiel as the sort of center of that of those concentric circles. But to what extent, if I'm looking at Reid Hoffman or Elon Musk or Max Levchin of a firm, like to what degree can I kind of understand them through that lens? Like are they presumptively similar to Thiel? Well, I think um I think the answer is yes and no. So Musk is kind of a special case. Um, you know, Musk is, he's kind of lumped in with the PayPal mafia, but, but you know, Teal cooed him in like 2001 while Musk was the CEO. Teal, you know, engineered this coup that, that, that bounced Musk out of the company. And they've had kind of a difficult friendship or frenemyship basically ever since. I think- <laughs> Max, um, say the quote that someone told you. That yeah, Musk, yeah. There's a Peter quote in the Musk book is- that says- Peter thinks that Elon is a fraud and a braggart, and and Elon thinks that Peter is a sociopath. And I think they, I, I mean, they obviously have shared interests, and I think they definitely see they're definitely aligned in certain areas. But but um, but they're very different people, and there's definitely still a little bit of bad blood over this this PayPal coup, which has been leavened over the years by Peter has made investments in in Elon's company, so it's not like it's not totally clean in any direction. So, let me just stop you very quickly, yeah, because I need to ask you this: Does Peter think that Peter is a sociopath? Like, I kind of think he does. <laughs> he would no, love you I don't to think that. I'm sure. I don't think he does think that he's a sociopath, and I'm not sure that I do. Well, I, well, actually, but what I, what I want to know is, what does he think of himself as? Like, what is in you know in your reporting for this book and your interviews with folks who are close to him? You know, the picture is very varied and variable. And what do you think? is the image that he thinks he's projecting into the world. I think, okay, so I mean, I think he sees himself as a kind of like Ayn Randian superhero, like a some kind of combination of Ayn Rand and like one of her characters, basically like a public intellectual. And I think he's very invested, and you can see this in, in, in kind of like who he talks to, the way he talks. You know, he's very invested in this idea of himself as like a philosopher. And he's, you know, published, self-published at times, you know, books. And he's definitely like invested in that part of him of his own, you know, perspective. And I think, you know, to varying degrees of success. Like, I think there are, th- like, there are aspects of, of his book, Zero to One, that I think are really interesting and provocative and they're at, you know they're at, at times he's been you know provocative and and really interesting. I think he has also though 
and this kind of maybe gets to what Felix is is saying. He's kind of played the heel at times, you know. Like I think he's I think he's somebody who this is likes, a wrestling reference for folks it, yeah, listening. Yes, heel is the bad guy in the in the wrestling match. <laughs> but but it, but also playing the heel is is something that is very connected to my favorite word in the English language, which is kayfabe, which is basically you don't believe really in what you're doing. It's all for show. And I don't think it's for show, right? He, he actually, like, he enjoys being the villain, but he enjoys being the villain rather than just pretending to be the villain. I think maybe. Uh, fun fact, Peter Thiel is a wrestling fan. He talks about kayfabe all the time. So, like, I, I don't think it's it's totally far-fetched. I mean, of course, he, he backed Hulk Hogan in that lawsuit. So he's had at least some... I think he's gone as Hulk Hogan to at least one costume party as well. I'd have to double-check that, but I think. Anyway... What I was going to say is, maybe, but he definitely has used it to his advantage. And the place where I think that's most clear is Palantir. So you would think a company that's like a surveillance thing, that has a lot of government contracts, that's been criticized by privacy advocates uh, for you know doing too much data mining, would sort of go out of its way to avoid being compared to Big Brother. But Palantir kind of embraced those comparisons and continues to this day to embrace comparisons. There was an Axios interview, you know, with Alex Karp uh, right before they went public where he was talking about, you know, the amazing power that we have. We have to make sure we don't abuse it. And I think the reason that they've embraced that is because it sells, basically. Like when you're seen as powerful, it gives you additional power. And and I think Teal has been really good at kind of projecting that in kind of both directions, in courting, in, in projecting power on the right, but also kind of getting um getting the left spun up. And and that's a thing he's done his entire career, you know, even before he was in tech, is is be super good at kind of creating these provocations. You know, people talk about um, and we're talking about the PayPal mafia, but I sometimes think it'd be more helpful to call it the Stanford Review mafia because many of those folks actually came out of Teal's, you know, right wing kind of trolley newspaper at, at Stanford. That doesn't include Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, or Max Levchin, the three that Felix brought up, but it does include, you know, a bunch of these other folks. And I think that kind of right wing kind of conservative activist energy was part of the kind of cultural coherence of PayPal and gives meaning and coherence to this group going forward. Some of the things you were just talking about, Max, point to Peter Thiel's success. His true talent, I think, just lies in marketing. He he markets himself as resident bad guy. He's good at projecting an image of himself. And like this book, though, very revealing about him, I bet he's probably happy with because it portrays him kind of like this like smart, kind of brilliant contrarian who's had all this success. But if you like dial it back, like even PayPal, that was Max Levchin's success. Peter Thiel was the marketer. He was the one, you know, pushing for things like pay people to sign up for PayPal to get the monopoly. Like that's his genius. The genius is like with so many of these tech people, the genius is in the marketing. It's in the acquisition of customers. It's not in the innovating he wants to go out that Peter Thiel go out and talk about innovation and how Silicon Valley doesn't invent really good science or tech stuff anymore. Um, and then like pay people to drop out of college, but it's all, it's all marketing. Like you lay out in the book so well, the Thiel fellowship where he's paying these little kids to drop out of school and like pushing them to become entrepreneurs at the age of 17. Like that's truly insane. It's just all, it's all marketing. Yeah, that in particular was a PR stunt. And I think that that is one I mean that I, that one to me is very clear cut. Like they they really had not thought through really any aspect of it except for like the announcement and what that was going to be like. And when you're talking about children, I mean, of course these are teenage children. They're not, you know, they're not little little kids, but still like, you know, it, it's it's I really think it's pretty questionable and I I completely agree with with your assessment about Teal as a marketer and I think that's something that uh, this kind of goes beyond Teal. I think I think a lot of these kind of brilliant um, tech people, um, they're not necessarily amazing technologists or anything like that. They're really good marketers. It's it is in some ways a marketing story. Is there is there a kind of tension though between Peter Teal's sort of stated love of monopolies, and he's very very explicit about saying that everyone should be a monopoly. It's the only way you can make money, um, and he said that literally in as many words. And so, like, he goes out and he markets something like Palantir as being 
we have a set of panopticon, a technological panopticon, which is unrivaled by anyone else on the planet. And we have a monopoly on this incredible technology. And if you want to exercise your power globally and you're the CIA or something like that, you basically need to use us. And the CIA looks at this and gets stars in their eyes and throws lots of money at him and all the rest of it. And it works as a marketing campaign. And it definitely works if you're trying to sell technology to... Um, you know, intelligence agencies around the world. This is the kind of thing they love to hear and they love to buy. But that still raises the question of whether it's true or not. And, and like, you know, reading your book and sort of between the lines of the whole Palantir story, it kind of sounds like Palantir really wasn't a monopoly on, didn't have a monopoly on anything. They, their technology was kind of fair to middling. And it really is just a marketing story. And I feel there's a tension there that, like, he is out there sort of saying, build a monopoly. And everyone's like, well, that's what you're doing. That's what you, you know, that the, the reason they believe his marketing is because of the book. And the book is really just a form of marketing. You, you mean Teal's book or, or, uh, yeah. Or, or my, the book where he said, zero yeah, to yeah, one. Yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's like, don't, don't make incremental steps, just like revolutionize everything. And they're like, Oh, well yeah. in that case, Palantir is, you know, you're, you, you have a multi-billion dollar stake in Palantir. That must be a monopoly too. Well, yeah, and I think so. There's been this kind of um, uh, tension in the press coverage of Palantir that we've seen play out again and again over the years, where you have sort of two tra- lines of criticism. One is Palantir is a panopticon and is you know taking our privacy and everything like that, and the other is this actually this business is not very good. Um, and and you saw there were all these BuzzFeed stories written in like 2015, 2016 that were kind of dismissed and mostly ignored by the press about how they were getting dropped by all these American big American companies, Coca Cola and I, I think J P Morgan. Maybe it's Pepsi. Anyway, a, a bunch of like major, you know, uh, largest companies in the world uh, in the world dropped them around that time, and it was because the software wasn't working very well. And I think a couple things going on. One is that when you're a government contractor, you can maybe get away with having not great software. I mean, like I think it's possible that Palantir software like doesn't work that well, and yet maybe it's better than the like Raytheon software. Like I, you know, I don't think like the companies that are that cater to this market are necessarily as rigorous or whatever like you know they're not as probably not as good at software as you know Amazon Microsoft or whoever so so i think it's possible they could be better i also think even if you sort of like accept the fact that palantir has failings there's still things that they've done that that cause me to worry and that part of that comes from the fact that there's reporting and there's also reporting of the bo- in the book new reporting about ways in which they've sort of ignored their ethical responsibilities to to sort of safeguard data to make sure their product isn't used poorly but it's also bad because this marketing that you're talking about creates a new permission structure right it creates incentives for other people to go out and try the same thing and i think that is something that that's what's dangerous about what a lot of um, a lot of the stuff that Teal has done or been involved with, where it's it's not even necessarily what he's doing. It's it's like he's creating this really bad example that then has a big impact in the world. Zero to one, um, you know, like you said, it it argues that monopoly is good. It's the end point of business, um, which is not, to my mind, like a that's a pretty radical break from like capitalism as I understand it. And it was marketed as a self help book. It's like monopoly is great, and you can too. And and I think that that is. That's a little bit troubling, and especially troubling when you're talking about the people who are listening to him. And these are the people who, I'm going to spout some marketing here, but it, it does have truth to it. I mean, these are the people who are building the future, and they've bought into a lot of these ideas that I think are much further away from kind of like the, our sort of shared value system than, than most of us realize. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. 
and I, I got people fracturing me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so Max, this this is a good segue into insider trading, which you didn't write this article in Business Week about um, corporate insider trading, but you did edit it and you said lots of nice words about it on Twitter. So we can ask you all of our questions about corporate insider trading and whether it's bad and why it's bad. But can you just give us briefly the sort of thesis of the article. Yeah. So the, 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 the article talks about a, a new sort of strain of research that's being done primarily at Wharton, but, but there are other sort of basically profess, business school professors who are looking into this, and they're doing quantitative analysis of insiders' trades. And insiders are basically um, executives, uh, like C-level executives, directors, people own more than 10% of the stock. And every time they trade, right, they have to file uh, this form. It's called a Form 4. And you can look at these Form 4s, right? You can see all their trades. You can do statistical analysis to ask, you know, how lucky were they when they make money? And what they're finding is that they're very, very, very lucky, right? Like these are – like they're they're winning at rates that are improbable. It's like as, as the writer of the piece um, – Well, when you're saying they, do you mean like – executives in general like a hundred percent of them in aggregate or do you mean specific ones here and there both right i mean there there are specific ones here and there that are 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 winning at absurd rates probably i guess i guess when i the analogy i was about to do which is like it's like making the you know the final table at the world series of poker you know multiple times in a row right which is like possible but it's not uh, common and when you look at the aggregate, they're outperforming, you know, the market by a lot. So that's the the research, right? And it's interesting. And and what the article argues is basically that there's an open secret on Wall Street, and not just on Wall Street, it, that nobody cares. That that basically within these companies, and actually, what what I found most provocative about in the story is it's not just within the companies, it's within the regulators, right? They just have decided that basically, and I'm speaking broadly, you know, one of the perks of being an executive at a company is to be able to trade on inside information. And and so you just have like example after example of, of this happening and a a reluctance, I guess, on the part of, of anyone to do anything about it. And I think it's interesting. And it raises questions about it does it raises important questions, I'd say, about whether first of all, whether or not anything could be done about it without like drastically reshaping our, you know, whatever, like how we structure companies and what we what we allow of executives. And also just kind of broad questions about fairness of the market. I'm going to try and carve out the the other side of this one. Um, it's I figured because Number one, this is about as close as it is possible to humanly come to a victimless crime. That, like, really no one is hurt. And you make the argument, or rather you you cite the argument without making the argument in the article, that it can actually be beneficial in terms of making markets more efficient. And... I'm not going to necessarily go that far, although, yeah, I mean, the whole point about markets is that you that there are a price discovery mechanism where you get thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people all trading in and out of a whole bunch of different securities at the same time. And then the emergent property from that is is basically like, where does the market think that something should trade and and at the margin yeah the the people who know the companies best which is that the 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 executives of those companies certainly do have a better sense of where that company is going and they're more likely to sort of buy when it's going about to go up and sell when it's about to go down and so you know they help push the prices in in the sort of correct direction I don't think that's particularly positive. I don't think that's necessarily a, a wonderful thing. But I don't, by the same token, think that there's an obvious victim there. So on that point, I'm looking at that story, and I'm also looking at the, the Wall Street Journal story that they, they also published this week about all of the federal judges who were hearing cases in which they had a financial interest. And 
one of the judge's arguments, which I think is slightly more plausible than the exact arguments, is that they just straight up like didn't know, right? They weren't paying attention. They weren't. I'm too rich to care about <laughs> about what's in my investment portfolio. And you know, there again, Felix, to your idea of this being kind of a victimless crime, I have always kind of struggled with the like. I don't think that people are immune to financial incentive responding to financial incentives. I also don't think that people necessarily are always super aware of those financial incentives when they're making decisions. And this reminds me a lot of the um, of like journalistic ethics discussions about how you can't own stock in the companies that you're writing about. And sure, like that would be a conflict. There's no doubt that if you own stock in a company you're writing about, that would be a conflict. On the other hand, if you're writing about a company, you are taking executives of that company out for drinks on a regular basis and trying to like pump them for information and learn about what's going on inside that company and you're building up these very human relationships with these people who you're spending hours and hours with over drinks and the idea that like having a intense human relationships with executives of a company is not a conflict whereas like owning 500 bucks worth of stock in the company is a conflict. You know, it seems weird to me. What about the scenarios? Like, okay, yeah, you're you're a C-suite exec, you know your company's doing well and you leverage that information for your benefit, fine. But what about like the examples in the story Max edited where it's like one Boeing executive, you know, sold $5 million of stocks knowing that, you know, the company was responsible for a plane crash that killed people ahead of that news coming out or at Under Armour, they're, they're selling stock right before they make an announcement acknowledging like fraud or whatever. That stuff seems so icky. I don't want executives, you know, trading stock ahead of like bad news about fraud or death. Like that just seems wrong to me. Like, you know, something that could really change the way everyone sees your company. You're profiting off of this like bad news. I, I don't know how you police that versus the other kind of inside insider trading, but it seems icky. Can I push back on the victimless thing, building on what Emily said? I mean, I don't know why you're saying it's victimless, because like if I if if you found out t- today like that some executives just going down Fifth Avenue and just sort of stealing randomly from people, 20 bucks here, 20 bucks there, and it adds up to millions of dollars, that would be, I think that is not a victimless crime. Yes, like he hasn't, um, he hasn't like impoverished any, you know, elderly people or whatever. He hasn't cost like the Will Ponds all their money, like, you know, Bernie Madoff or something. But that's not good. And that's kind of what's happening in some of these cases, right? It's all like right. Expl- it's- Max, explain to me, explain to me who are the people losing twenty bucks here and twenty bucks there. Well, you don't feel a little bummed out by, say, a, a pharmaceutical company that if if you if you're in a, an investor in an index fund and your index fund sells at the market pr- the prevailing market price because it's rebalancing or something to a um, a pharmaceutical executive who knows the stock's about to go up by three bucks a share or something you don't think that like like that doesn't like bum you out just a little bit that like that that this executive took three dollars of profits like out of your pocket per share but they didn't but the, that's the whole point the index fund had to rebalance it had to enter the market and sell. That yeah, was the market price. That they, pro- yeah, but the market was it was yeah. But, but so if there was if there was an extra buyer out there buying the stock, that actually raises the price that the index fund gets for the selling that it was doing anyway. It didn't know that there was about there was news about to come out, and so it would have sold whether or not that executive was in the market. It would have sold at that price whether or not the executive was in the market. Arguably, it would have sold at a slightly lower price if the executive wasn't in the market. So I don't see how that fund lost any money at all. I was going to say, I think the problem is when the executives know bad news that's going to force the stock price to go down and they profit and the people in the index fund don't. And then they, the people in the index fund lose money once the news comes out. But the po- my, my point is that I agree that ethically this is odious where i disagree is that there are victims because absent that insider trading the stock would still have gone down and the people in the index fund would still have lost money that there is no like there is no difference in outcome for the in index funds or for anyone else there is no victim here but uh, but but the, of course, the executive can make a different decision, right? Instead of calling their broker and saying like buy a bunch of shares or sell a bunch of shares, they could do 
the more transparent thing and announce the news, right? And tell everyone what had happened. And instead, they are acting in their own personal financial interest, it appears. I think what we're describing is kind of a spectrum. And again, going back to the, I knew a thing, and because I knew that thing, I am deliberately taking an action, to I'm blithely unaware of what I'm even holding, and I'm you know ruling on, arbitrating on, making decisions about things that will in fact be affected by my decision, but that's not necessarily like something that's even at the forefront or back of my mind when I'm doing so. And so I, I think that, you know, I do think intentionality here and awareness are, they don't make it more or less ethical, but they do increase the probability that you are knowingly doing something that could hurt or affect somebody else. I have a question for Max, um, which is 50% about insider trading and 50% about how... Um, to read financial journalism, which is one of the things which I like to think about a lot. Um, and I've been writing about for, you know, 15 years. Every so often when I read one of these stories, I will come across a, pa- a passage a bit like this. So in your story, you talk about the CEO of Greenwich Life Sciences, who had lots of, had high returns on the purchases he made of stock, comma, because four of the trades preceded the announcement of promising results from a cancer drugs f- trial. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. And then in the next sentence, you say, Patel points out that the success of the Greenwich Life Sciences trial was referenced on the company's website and IPO perspective before an IPO prospectus before he traded. So now I'm like, we have two sentences next to each other. One of them saying he traded before this was announced. And then the next sentence was like, he points out that it was actually announced. How am I supposed to read that? What, like, it seems like you're sort of contradicting yourself there. No, it's, I mean, it, the the idea is the information was kind of buried or something, you know? I mean, I think that's the implication, that, that, although, that a very careful reader would have seen it, although a less careful reader... Uh, would not have. And I think that's, again, you can debate whether or not, whether that's satisfactory or not. Um, but we haven't talked about these these trading plans, which I think are another somewhat scandalous thing where the companies sort of claim that they're, that these are planned transactions. But then when you actually dig into it, like a trading plan is just like, I'm going to make a trade today and you can trade it and you can change it at any time. And anytime they're accused of impropriety, they just, you know, fall back on this, on these rules. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's like a case of where the thing that's acceptable, like legal is more scandalous than the illegal behavior. Like no one's saying these guys are breaking, you know, any, you know, it's not even clear that they're breaking any rules. I just, it feels ethically dubious and it feels like it may be worth revisiting um, some of the structure, including these, these trading plans, um, which I think is the, is the, the thing that like, um, you know, the government is most focused on in this story. So, so yeah, and we've definitely had Gary Gensler talk about this in, in Congress. I, I think that you're absolutely right that there is a bunch of um, freedom that people have that the trading plans are supposed to constrain, but in fact, they don't really constrain it at all. Obviously, you know, the way that American capitalism works is that executives get given stock. There's no point in giving executive stock unless they can actually sell it at some point somehow. And um, there needs to be some way for them to sell stock, uh, you know, otherwise they just not, they're just not going to value it. But there are some, I guess, proposals out there that would firm up the rules about how far in advance you need to telegraph these, you know, the such such sales um, or purchases and that kind of thing. Is that basically the takeaway from the from the article? Is that like for sort of moral reasons we want to sort of tighten up on those rules a bit? That's my takeaway. I mean, you didn't even make the most fun counterargument, which is that insider information is intellectual property. And therefore, you know, like that's the more extreme sort of libertarian argument for insider trading, not the efficiency thing, but that companies should be able to, you know, do whatever they want with their information, including, you know, make money in the market, which I I find really, you know, kind of fun um, and and also provocative. Um, For me... I mean, so like there was was a very interesting and provocative, um, like, you know, Matt Levine column about that way. He was like, what if we actually took this to its logical conclusion and companies could just 
determine on that for, for themselves the degree of insider trading that they were happy with. And some would be like, you can only, you know, none of our executives can ever sell stock until like a year after they've retired. And then some are like, everyone in the company has stock and is positively encouraged to trade in and out according to all of the information that they have and no one else has. And then just leave it up to the market whether, you know, which one of those two companies would trade at a discount because of those rules. I mean, that's the system we have, though. That's not a that's not a crazy thought experiment. That's kind of how it works now. I mean, yes, in theory, you can be prosecuted for insider trading. But as the article shows, like no one is. Um, and, you know, when we do do insider trading prosecutions, they're not prosecutions of, of stuff that's happening inside the head of an executive. Like it's it's all like these, quote unquote, you know, tipper or tippy cases. The argument sort of against taking any of this seriously is just, this is how it is. There's no better solution. That was kind of like what Matt Levine argued. I, I, I feel like it's sort of what you're saying. And I think that there's, I, I totally accept that. And then that's why like all these prosecutors, I don't think all these prosecutors who don't want to prosecute these crimes are corrupt or something. I think they are, they're acting in, they're, they're being intelligent and they're looking at the law and they're also looking at the, the degree of the crime, as you brought up. This is not as bad. Even if you think they're victims, the victims are much smaller scale than most other financial crimes. And they're, they're drawing this conclusion. But I, I tend to agree with the, you know, this Wharton professor that there are ways that you could you know, trim the the regulation to make the markets work better. And I think one obvious thing are these trading plans. Like, it is crazy that you set a quote-unquote trading plan, and then you can just change your mind all the time. Like, I, I think executives at big corporations get paid a lot of money, and I think it would be p- better if their compensation were more transparent. And, and like, one way to make it more transparent would be to restrict their um, their trading and a little bit more than it is right now. And then if you have to pay them a little bit more in cash or something th- th- to make up for that, because otherwise they won't work there, I think that would be like a more honest and more transparent and probably like a more, yeah, I don't know, just feels more equitable to me. And maybe maybe you're right that maybe it would make no difference in practice. It, I mean, presumably it is entirely possible for any company listed on the U.S. stock market to unilaterally embrace such a rule right if if i'm running i don't know netflix and i i i come out one day i'm like no executive is allowed to um buy or sell any netflix stock unless they have filed a plan with the general counsel at least six months in advance and you can only you know you need to give six months notice if you want to change that plan and you know like put all of these rules in place and if you trade in and out of netflix stock outside those rules we will fire you and then like any company could could implement that rule unilaterally without the government coming in and and implementing that rule is it your opinion that if netflix came out and did that tomorrow that would be helpful for the share price that shareholders would like be like yeah that's a great idea we should we should like we should you know we should we should no. rate, it, rate Netflix more highly. But I would care. I mean, I, uh, but but yeah, <laughs> you, I think you're... you a reporter, you a Netflix watcher. I mean, I think if, <laughs> I think people would, you know, in the long run, like it might build some some brand equity. Like if a company was seen as like a really responsible corporate citizen, and like in the long run, like I think that could conceivably there's a there's conceivable to help the share price it also is conceivable that the next time an executive is called in front of congress about something else like there will be more goodwill because it'd be seen as a as a more ethical player but no i don't think wall street cares about that i mean they you know it's like a very skeptical expression i I just think if i'm a shareholder in netflix and they announce that my concern would be that it would it would hurt them in recruiting because netflix gets the best executives say are the best, they do the best hiring and whatever, because their stock is so valuable, blah, blah, blah. So maybe it could have this unintentional side effect where it hurts their ability to recruit and their stock goes down in that way because they lose talent. That was what I was thinking. So you're selling then and at that. Uh... <laughs> I mean, part of me is like, who is on the side of who cares? And, and beyond the who cares, I'm like, well, and then I think Matt Levine made these points like, when you are an executive at a company, you always know stuff that no one else knows. You're always an insider. Any trade you do is insider trading because, duh, you know stuff. And, like, you're supposed to have a stake in the in how well the company does. Like, that. that's why you're ostensibly given stock is because you have a stake in the company's success. So, of course, you're going to trade the stock and try and make money off the stock because 
you know stuff. You want the company to do well. And it, it all is like a virtuous circle and it's all amazing. Just don't trade before some like really heinous thing happens. But even then, I'm like, well, it makes sense. You know you're going to announce a heinous thing. You don't want to lose money. Okay. It's all fine. <laughs> Can one Maybe it's all fine. Under capitalism is, is basically I, the I, 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 I did not come into this podcast expecting <laughs> Emily Peck to be more laissez-faire than Max Jafkin, but that seems to be where we wound up. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. We need to talk about Carlos Watson. Um, Stacy. Who is Carlos Watson? Carlos Watson was, I think, Well, I love the fact that we're talking about him in the past tense already. (laughs) I mean, he's had a bad week. He's had a very bad week. I think until the the publication of a certain column by one Ben Smith of the New York Times this weekend, either a person who people may have encountered because he hosts various things, a person who most people outside of media had never heard of, or a person who has like tried to hire <laughs> most people in media at one point or another. And Carlos Watson, as of this week, is the still the CEO of Aussie Media, which is part of a universe of, at the time, kind of the Upworthies, um, the Mikes, some people like to put BuzzFeed in that category, of you know the digital media startups that would fusion? save the world. Fusion, <laughs> Felix, please disclose your fusion relationship in the spirit of transparency. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll admit that I worked for Fusion. If you admit that you worked for Buzzfeed, I, I admit that I work for Buzzfeed all the time. Uh, <laughs> and you know, in the column that Ben wrote, he shared this mind-boggling anecdote that when Aussie was in fundraising conversations and they were having meetings with Goldman Sachs, one of their senior executives, a guy named Samir Rao, pretended to be a YouTube exec on the call with Goldman in an attempt to affirm that, you know, Aussie had this fantastic relationship with YouTube and that they had all of these incredible views. And it, one, it's unclear if the statements about their YouTube performance is actually true, but, but it is clear that Samir Rao was impersonating a YouTube executive on a call with Goldman Sachs. <laughs> Literally, as, um, as we're recording this, like more reporting is coming out from Axios about like... <laughs> Massive pay cuts that weren't reported. People who were re- reported to have been investors, who, like like Sharon Osborne was apparently a, an investor in Aussie, and now she's like, nope, I was never an investor. That guy's a complete shyster. Um, the the chairman has stepped down. The 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 lead journalist Katie Kay has stepped down. Um, Axel Springer's like running away. Laureen Powell is running away. Like, what is absolutely amazing, one of the things that's amazing to me is that one, sorry, it was a blockbuster story, it was an amazing, like, jaw-on-the-floor story from Ben Smith, uh, but that one story about Samir Rao basically just, you know, committing blatant fraud is enough to completely implode a company. Like, this company does not seem to have any future anymore at all. Well, because the story didn't just expose this one wild thing that Samir Rao did. It exposed this company as a total house of cards. They lied 
according to Ben's piece, I don't know if you said they lied, but they claim to have traffic that they surely did not have. No, no one is reading their content at all. Like it, it, it's just, a, it was a mirage of a company and the anecdote sort of, I think, confirmed a lot of what people in the media had probably been thinking for a long time. It's why you see all these um, news bits and scoops coming out. I've never seen anything so reported as this story about this company that really honestly doesn't matter. Like everyone saw the ads for Ozzy, but no one ever saw an article from Ozzy. So as soon as Ben Smith's story comes out, you're like, oh, and it all clicks into place. Like, oh, this this is not a real media company. Yeah, there, right? would, there would be all of these YouTube videos with like 200,000 views and and like three likes and one comment. And you're like, that's not how YouTube videos work. <laughs> At least 15 people should have said something hateful in, exactly. in the comments with those ratios. So, And I guess a lot of media people probably feel like we've all lived through all the layoffs and all the shrinking and the downsizing and the pivoting to video and the pivoting away from video and the and pivoting, pivoting to TikTok back to video. And blah, 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 <laughs> and the hiring and the firing and the na, 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 na. And then you're, the whole time that's happening with all those other companies you mentioned, BuzzFeed and Fusion and da, 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 Ozzy's just somehow still going strong. And it's like, why? <laughs> well, it's still going anyway. It's still going and allegedly strong according to, to their to them basically according to them although like this is what one of the super interesting like subplots here is that carlos watson put out this statement basically saying ben smith is totally conflicted here he should never have written this story because when he was at buzzfeed he tried to buy ozzy and he was following me up and saying personally more likely no ben personally like ben personally was like phoning up carlos and saying you should sell to buzzfeed or at least that's what Carlos is saying. Ben is not replied. The disclosure in the Times piece supports that. He said he was involved in those discussions in the in the piece. Yeah, but like, but the the point being that like BuzzFeed did its diligence on Aussie. That like Emerson Collective for one was encouraging Aussie to sell, and you know Carlos Watson for whatever reasons decided not to. But like, there was at least you know there's some very smart people in media, i.e. Jonah Peretti was like, yeah, this is a, a franchise that has real value and we should buy. And that was not that long ago. I don't want to say anything about Jonah Peretti's smarts. <laughs> I will say that Jonah, Jonah is, is coming out as an author on, on BuzzFeed. He put up a quiz this week about um, art and AI, which I can highly recommend everyone take. I got 19 out of 19. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> I hope that book about BuzzFeed is actually just a history of all the women who built the place who get constantly written out of history. But that is a story for another show. Um, one of the things that I have been fascinated by with Aussie, and this is just kind of like meta media car- commentary, is the speed of the cycle with which this thing comes out on Sunday. And, you know, by we're recording on Friday, I think there's like seven or eight different deeply reported study stories, including one from Bloomberg News, where they're like, we interviewed 18 different employees, and this is what their working conditions were like. And, and you know, and, and everybody is really unhappy and has all of these incredibly compelling double and triple sourced anecdotes. And I'm always obsessed with this thing that happens in media, whether it's about a media company or, or another, which is like, you just need one crack. <laughs> And everything that everybody was kind of vaguely aware of all the time just like really rolls into motion. And, and Emily, it's similar to what you said, right? Where Ben wrote it and then various of us in media were like, oh, yeah, <laughs> good point and starts making calls. Yeah. So, but, it, but it stands in stark contrast to like Theranos, right? Like that, that, that is exactly what didn't happen. Like you get this massive blockbuster story from John Carreyrou and then it takes a year to go as far as we've gone with Aussie in a week. Probably longer than that. Well, one, I think it's because media people leak like sieves. And <laughs> when, it, when, when wanting to talk about the conditions of their workplace. So there is that. And two, and this was a point that I did see made and that I do agree in the abstract with which is it's very easy to go after non-traditional executives, like both Watson and Samir Weil are not white men, or white women as the case may be, in a way that does not seem to apply in a lot of other cases. Say more about that. I, I, I wondered about that too. Yeah, I mean, one of the conversations that I've been having with folks is 
that there are because there are relatively few black men leading media companies at either the executive level or the editorial, you know, sort of LA Times, Kevin Merida, editor-in-chief level, um, and that when any of the folks in, in these demographics like do anything wrong, there's this immediate reckoning of like, see, <laughs> told you these folks shouldn't be in charge of media companies. And I remember, um, I'm going to use a girl boss, this is the only time I'm going to say girl boss on Slate Money, I promise. At sort of the height of the backlash to the girl bosses when we had these stories about management problems at various, you know, e-commerce direct-to-consumer retailers or you remember the away fiasco about you know the slack messages being like why are you on holiday etc etc there was a lot of commentary that like yeah it's really easy to say that women ceos behaving badly is a bigger story than male ceos behaving badly and i think within this commentary there are always two tensions one is that is societally true and the other is when folks behave badly, we should hold them accountable. But it is easier for us to hold people accountable who are, you know, who don't look like we would expect them to. I am so glad you said that because reading Max's book, I had that thought about Peter Thiel versus Elizabeth Holmes, who rightly is on trial right now, right? And and there's no question she's did wrong or whatever, but Peter Thiel and the PayPal mafia from from almost the beginning did lots of like wild shenanigans that held up to scrutiny would also kind of fail a lot of tests. Like they let, <laughs> they let financial fraud just go on during PayPal so that pe- more people would sign up for PayPal. And they, they knew it was happening and they did not stop it until they sort of like forced to, and they invented a whole new technology. So we wouldn't, so they, they wouldn't really have to crack down in a serious in a serious way, and we have to thank these people for clicking on the traffic lights every time you want to sign up for something that is directly tied back. Anyway, but I was thinking a lot about that, what Peter Thiel is an evil genius, but Elizabeth Holmes is like a psychopath liar. You read defenses of Thiel, and some of them have come out after the book has, you know, came out. I tried to be whatever fair, give credit where due and be critical where, where due or whatever. But um, but anyway, uh, a lot of people have read it as too critical. And, and there are defenses that are like, yeah, he believes some crazy stuff. But like, but look at these companies, these amazing companies. And it's kind of, I think that's a weird, really odd, it's like an odd defense. I also, I mean, there is this, you know, PayPal Mafia is very male, very, very white network, right? And I mean, you know, there's been... I got into this a little bit in the book, but um, my colleague Emily Chang, you know, wrote wrote about this in her book, Brotopia. But like a lot of the kind of Silicon Valley sexism, I, I think some of it dates to this to this network as well. And and you, I mean, you can go back, and I don't want to drag everyone through this history, but you know, there's some stuff that the Stanford Review published a lot of, you know, stuff that you know I think really crossed the line on on gender and and sexual discrimination and things like that. And and I think those value, you know, there's never really been any kind of accounting for for any of that. On which note, I think we should have a numbers round. Max, did you bring a number this week? I have a number, yeah. Do you want What's to hear your it? What's the number? <laughs> yeah, we want to hear it. Uh, my number is $4.98 billion, which is the minimum amount of money that Peter Thiel would have to withdraw from his Roth IRA account, which is his tax-advantaged um, retirement account, should the uh, legislation that's currently, uh, the Democratic legislation in the House to reform um, IRAs uh, were to go through, because it would limit it would limit the amount of money you would have to uh, keep in a, in a Roth IRA to $20 million. Thiel has at least $5 million. And um, the, 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 the law seems like entirely written for Peter Thiel, uh, and that's that. That is really m- more to ProPublica's credit than than mine. Um, but uh, but but in any case, it would really shake things up, and it wouldn't just shake things up for Peter Thiel. It would shake things up for a lot of um, Silicon Valley uh, rich guys who have adopted this strategy as a as a tax mitigation. Um, yeah, effort. I mean, I, I remember first coming across this strategy in the context of Mitt Romney running for president. That he had done something basically identical. Okay, but crucially, Romney's IRA was not a Roth IRA. It was just a regular old IRA. So, like, he would still have to pay, which, and ever, and there was like some head scratching at the time because, you know, it, it's not, it wasn't, it, it almost seems like he got that IRA by accident. Like, you know, just because, <laughs> like, if you're in private equity, like, and you you're just rich bump enough. Into, 
you just start <laughs> just bumping tall, into like white guy just, mummy things. Um, <laughs> but but I do think that that IRA and I, I talk about this in the book, like the Romney IRA thing was really bad for Peter Thiel because it created this entire like news cycle um, around IRAs, and and Romney only had I think like a hundred million bucks in his IRA, and so like in Peter Thiel world. They're looking at that thinking like, ooh, like this, this seems like this could this could be a political problem for us. And and of course it's 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 maybe turning into one, although I think it's unlikely that that there will be a real reform effort. <clears throat> My number is twenty six thousand three hundred and sixty one dollars. That is the average value of company shares held by women in twenty eighteen. And that compares with the average for men, which is 104,902. So a lot lower. And this really nice um, Wall Street Journal piece about uh, the gender gap in stock options. So not only do women make less cash compensation, apparently they also get less stock too. So when all that insider trading is going on, women are at a disadvantage. This is this yeah. is women like executives, I guess. Women, yeah. uh, this is yeah, people women paid in options and RSUs, yeah. and yes. this was a look at, yeah. at stock options. Yes, sorry, employers, people who own their employers' stock. Um, I'm I'm going to uh, impinge on Stacy Marie territory with my number, which is twenty three million dollars, which is the amount of money that the Good Samaritan Ethereum miner gave back to the guy who accidentally paid $23 million in gas fees when he tried to transfer $100,000 in cash from one wallet to another wallet. Um, this is one of the sort of standard, like, normal for a Tuesday um, crypto stories that, like, it's obviously why Stacey moved into this world because these stories are amazing. But there's this, you know, stable coin, um, which is linked to the dollar, and you just, you, like, I have $100,000, so I want to move it from this wallet to that wallet so I can trade it somewhere else, fine. When you make those transfers, you have to pay a gas fee, which we do not need to go into. Um, the gas fee on such a transfer is small, but if you want to, you know, make the transfer go quicker, it can be, like, quite expensive. It can be, like, 50 bucks or 60 bucks or something like that. But somehow... Because of a software glitch, the gas fee on this transaction was $23 million. And this guy had $23 million in his account. So he just paid it and it went to this miner in an irrevocable, unreversible way. Um, but then the miner, being like a good good Samaritan crypto kind of person, said, like, you know what? I, didn't, I don't really deserve this money. I'll give it back. And gave it back. It's not the first of its kind. <laughs> It's like when you return uh, the rental car and the, like, and then it, like, you, the only place to gas up is like six ninety nine a gallon and you're just like, oh, darn. Gas fees, man. <laughs> They're bad everywhere. Uh, my order of magnitude different for sure. But yes. <laughs> uh, my number is 14.7 billion. And that is the size of the deal that Zoom and a company called Five Nine didn't go through with. So... Zoom, which we do not, we no longer have to explain this being an episode recorded during a pandemic, um, was looking to acquire a company called Five Nine, which is like which provides call centers, which is um, hashtag interesting synergy, but call center software provider. And Zoom's shares have not been doing great, and Zoom was like, oh, the, the value of the deal is no longer appealing to us, so we are going to we are going to withdraw. I thought it was the other way around. I thought it was Five Nine who pulled out because they reckon that yeah partly zoom's shares yeah. have been underperforming zoom and zoom was paying nine was like we're not interested exactly yeah but also because five nine was like look how much everyone else's stock has gone up since this deal was announced our stock would be much higher it reminds me a little bit of when the visa plaid merger got unwound um you know visa announced they were buying plaid for some gazillion like five billion dollars or something and then they announced they weren't buying plaid and then Plaid was worth much more than that the minute the deal was unwound because in the meantime the markets had gone up so much that a company like Plaid was worth a fortune or even more of a fortune. Do you want to explain what Plaid is? <laughs> I, uh, next time. <laughs> I, 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 feel, I feel like if I was if I was explaining what Plaid is that would take too long and like well next next time on Slate Money I will explain. I will. Explain I'm going to put that Plaid in the is. notes. I'm going to remind yeah. you next. Ne week. Next time we do a fintech show, we will we will talk about Plaid. Um, 
But I think that's it for this show. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you very much to Max Chafkin for coming on. You're a superstar. And thank you for sending us the emails as you, we love them all on Slate Money at Slate.com. Thank you to Shana Roth for producing. And we will be back next week on Slate Money with even more. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.